All right, if you want to grab a seat, and if you've got a if you've got a Bible with you, whether that's in a hard copy or on your phone, if you want to open it up to Hebrews chapter nine, we're going to pick up right in the middle of that chapter, verse fifteen, and work our way to the end. And as we do, this is something that we say here frequently, and that's that anytime you you go to look at a particular passage of scripture, whether that's here on a Sunday morning or you sit down to spend some time uh, in scripture on your own, it's incredibly important that you at least give a, a little bit of time to reminding yourself of where that passage or that particular verse or that chapter is situated, not just in the current book that you're reading, but also within all of Scripture. So one of the ways that you guard yourself from taking something and moving it out of context or using it or thinking about it in a way that it wasn't intended is that you keep in mind the big picture. And so the Bible, one story beginning to end, one unified message, Genesis to Revelation, and where we're currently situated in that is the book of Hebrews, New Testament after Jesus. But that unified message of the Bible, that unified story that begins in Genesis 1 and continues all the way through the end of Revelation is about the demonstration of God's glory and greatness and goodness and mercy in salvation, in Jesus. The message that you need a Savior, I need a Savior, all of humanity needs a Savior, and Jesus is the only one person, the only thing in all of history that is sufficient and qualified to be that Savior. That message runs from beginning to end. God is glorious and good and great, and we see it supremely in the fact that he gave his son in order to secure our salvation. The book of Hebrews then, in the middle of that big unified message, puts forward for us just how wonderful and marvelous Jesus is. That's, the author of Hebrews really has one goal, to remind this persecuted small church of just how wonderful Jesus is. Recapture his audience's awe for Jesus. That's the goal of Hebrews. That because of that awe, you would cling to Jesus, endure for Jesus, that you would persevere in your faith, and that one of the primary ways that you would do that is being continually captivated by his greatness, that he is just better than all things. In the immediate context of where we are, the author has been laying out these incredible promises that are secured for us in this new covenant, that Jesus has ushered that in. He's made us his people. He's taken us to be this kingdom of priests who work and serve for this new kingdom reality that he ushered in on the cross that is advancing now through the church and that one day he will come back and fully uh, finalize and consummate is the right word. The reminder from a couple weeks ago is that the only thing we brought into the entire equation, the only thing we brought to the securing of our salvation, the only thing we brought into that covenant, that new covenant, is the sin that made it necessary. That's it. Jesus supplied everything else. Let that be sort of the backdrop. Big picture, the glory of God, the the sending of Jesus, smaller picture in Hebrews, Jesus is awesome and glorious and superior to all things. He's better than all things. And then in the immediate, he's ushered us into this new covenant and it comes with amazing promises. The other thing I want to have kind of running in the background here is that as finite human beings, the only conception of time that we have is linear. That 
it moves from point A to point B and on down the line. That if I did something at 6.30 p.m. yesterday, I cannot do something now that would rewrite what I did at 6.30. We're working in a line. I could do something to try to fix the consequences. I said something sharp to my wife. I forgot to do something, and it brought some negative consequences. And I could try to undo those. I could try to make them right. But I can't go back and change it. It's also true that I can't do something at 6.30 p.m. tonight and loop back to right now, 10.05 a.m., and live in the reality of the thing coming in the future. It doesn't work that way. Time works in a line. But it presents a question. What happens if eternal, timeless God steps into time? Well, that would change things. He would have the ability to work beyond the linear. And so, let me just be concrete. Last week, we talked about the Day of Atonement. That sacrifice offered on that day was good for the sins of the last calendar year. It could do nothing for sins that were before that. It could also do nothing about the sin I would commit 30 minutes from now. Eternal, timeless God steps into time and things change. That's what we're going to see this morning. Past, present, future. That's what Hebrews 9 verses 15 to 28 lay out for us. Let's pray and then we'll read that passage. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather as a church body and to worship you, God, for the opportunity to open up your word and just spend some time in awe of Jesus. I pray that that would be the overwhelming atmosphere here this morning would be one of praise and worship for just how marvelous Jesus is, for how amazing it is that his work on the cross has provided atonement for all of our sin, past, present, and future. God, that his work on the cross and his mediating in heaven right now rearranges our world and our actions and our behaviors in the present and that one day he is coming back and with him he will bring a full and final end to all of sin. He will put Satan uh, out of this world forever and he will usher in a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth and we will spend eternity with him there. God, I pray we would just be overwhelmed with how marvelous that reality is, with the glory of that. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words, press them into our hearts. God, have them be more than just intellectual, theological truth. God, I pray that you would use them to shape and mold our lives. The way it is that we live, the way it is that we hope and think, the way it is that we formulate our attitudes and opinions. God, would you shape us and mold us by the truth of your word and by the glory of who you are, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with me in verse 15. We're going to take this in some chunks. Therefore, that's about everything that's been said in the first 14 verses of the chapter. He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is present. He is a mediator right now of a new covenant. Verse 16, where a will exists... The death of the one who made it must be established, for a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. 
According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That act, past tense, foreshadows a past tense act that Jesus has done, shedding his blood, purifying his people by his blood. Verses 23 to 26 describe the act. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the atonement. And then verses 27 and 28, this is future. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Past, present, future, verse 15, present, 16 to 22, really you could go 16 all the way down to 26 is past. That's what Christ did. And then 27 and 28 in the future. Let's just work through them in those chunks. I'm actually going to take them out of the order of the verses and I'm going to put them in time linear order because it's easier for us to think that way. Verses 16 to 22 is a past act. And what we learn is that Jesus has initiated our salvation, initiated is an intentional choice. Uh, I use that because he's initiated something in you, in us as his followers. His work on the cross didn't just start salvation, it completed it. He did, it is finished. It has been accomplished. But in a believer, it began something, changed something in you that's going to be worked out over the course of your lifetime and then brought to fulfillment when you're finally glorified in the Lord's presence. He initiated something inside of us. And the way that the author describes it is with a will. Verses 16 and 17 are an illustration about this will. Let me just draw that out for us. You sit down with a parent, your mother or your father. They're growing old. Their health is good, but it's time to start having the conversation about what's going to happen when they pass away. And they draw up the terms of a will. And you find out while you're sitting there with them that you're going to receive a a certain amount of cash, maybe some Uh, some stuff tied up in stocks or um, in the stock market in some form or fashion. You're going to receive the house at the lake, the boat that goes along with the house that's at the lake, season tickets to the Kauffman Center, some heirlooms from the family, and some other small items. You have that conversation, and then you get up and you leave. What do you walk out of that house with? Nothing. You walk out with nothing. Nothing. You don't receive anything until your parent passes away. That's what the author is saying here. All of those wonderful new covenant promises that were talked about in Hebrews chapter 8 when he quoted from Jeremiah 31, those are being held out for the Israelite people. That you'll have the law written on your heart, that you will know Jesus, that you will be taken to be his people, that your sin will be forgiven. But they've got to be initiated. They've got to be put into effect and it required a death the death of Jesus Christ. 
That's what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. Then it moves into this whole conversation from 18 to 22 about blood. In fact, in my own Bible, as I was reading through this, I started underlining the word blood because in five verses, it's used six times. When the Bible repeats something like that, it's trying to draw your attention to it. That little chunk is about the cleansing work of blood. In fact, it says that Moses went up on the mountain, he received the covenant, he came down and he inaugurated it with blood. That's Exodus chapter 24. Moses comes down and he's, he's holding the law, which is the written sort of agreement of this covenant promise, what God is promising, what the people are to uphold, and he presents it to the people and they give this incredible proclamation. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. Bold statement. We'll uphold all of it. So then Moses sets up an altar there, not the altar in front of the tabernacle because that hasn't been built yet. He makes a temporary one and he sacrifices a bull. He takes the blood of that bull and he sprinkles it there on that temporary altar. And then he does something that to us today sounds totally disgusting. And I think it would have been disgusting in the time too. He takes that blood and he splashes it over the people. Israel assembled there together probably thinking to themselves, oh, this is really nice. He sacrificed that bull and it's a reminder of sin and that sin leads to death and blood leads to atonement. And he sprinkled it on the altar and that's great. And then why is he throwing it on me? Like, that's gross. Verse, verse 22 tells us, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. You find out later that once the tabernacle is actually set up, that Moses does something very similar. He, he sprinkles blood over the actual uh, complex itself in order to purify it. When Aaron and his descendants are installed as priests, they take a little bit of the blood of a bull and they rub it on his left earlobe to signify purity. Sounds kind of disgusting. Would have been kind of gross. But it's this constant reminder Sin, its consequence is death. Blood is the only thing that can atone. Everything is purified with blood. That's the point. And then verses 23 down to 26 show how Jesus' blood fulfills that forward-looking reality. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed forward to the blood of Jesus Christ that would ultimately purify We'll get there in a minute. Let's talk present. That's in verse 15. In the present, we know, or we learn, we're reminded that Jesus has wholly mediated our salvation. He's the mediator of a new covenant. That's happening right now. We've talked about this already quite a bit, so we don't need to spend a ton of time on it today. But Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God, living bodily ever interceding on our behalf. He's mediating the covenant. Think back to that will. A death is required to initiate it, but in a normal will situation, the person who just died can't now bring everyone together in order to make sure that the will comes to fruition. But timeless God enters into time, dies, is buried, resurrects, ascends and is living. The, terms, the, the situation's changed. He can both initiate it by his death, and now, because he's still living, he can mediate it. He can bring us, purified by his blood, into the presence of the Lord, bringing the two parties 
together. He died, he rose, he lives, and now he can provide both the means by which we receive new covenant promises and the mediation necessary for us to enter into the Lord's presence. And then verses 27 and 28. It's the future picture. And just as, the appointed, or just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having, off, or having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Notice the second time he appears. It's not to bear sin. He's already done that. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In the future, Jesus will wholly consummate our salvation. Now, the only framework we have today for the word consummate involves a wedding night. Okay, so get your giggles out. I walked around the office. I said, I'm going to have to use the word consummate. What's that make you think? And like 75% of people chuckled. I asked my wife. She laughed and said, you need a different word. So I started thinking about the different words. Is it that Jesus will one day accomplish our salvation? No, that's not true. He did that on the cross. Will he fulfill our salvation? Also not true. He did that on the cross. Will he complete our salvation? Again, not true. He did that on the cross. The only right theological word is that he will consummate it. That's what happens on your wedding night. The, I get together, I perform a wedding, I sign the paper... They're married in the eyes of the law. I mean, we, we did the thing. We didn't even need the ceremony. We just needed to sign the paper and send it back in. But all of the kind of blessings of the covenant of marriage, oneness of flesh, come into being when that is consummated. That's what will happen when Jesus returns a second time. Think again about the will. In a normal will situation, a person dies... They can't bring parties together in order to put the will into effect. They also cannot hand you the keys to the lake house, give you great-great-grandma's pearls, hand over the stock options and the cash. They can't do that. But timeless God steps into human time, changes reality. His act can work past, present, future. It's similar to what Hebrews 1 described as Jesus being creator, sustainer, and inheritor of all of creation. He's timeless. He can play all of those roles. He can die on the cross. He can mediate before the throne. And he can consummate when he returns again. He's capable of holding all of that. Let's pause here for a minute. Why does any of that matter? The only reason that right theology is important is that it would produce right living in God's people. So it's one thing to just sort of rearrange our intellectual thought processes and understand God correctly. That's not a bad thing. But to just stack up the knowledge doesn't go all the way like it should. Right theology should produce right living. So what do we do with this? It's great knowledge to know that Jesus can have all these roles. That's wonderful. Why does it matter? Your awe of the reality of Jesus his supremacy, his greatness is part of what will help you endure in Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews puts before us. In awe for the person of Jesus Christ. So as simple as this sounds, the application here primarily is that we would stand in awe. There's an old hymn. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.
and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. Picture whatever your preferred spot is. You're on the beach, warm sun, baking you, just the smell and the sounds of the ocean rolling in there on the shore. Maybe you're in the mountains, you've climbed to the summit, and you're overlooking what is just a beautiful expanse of God's creation. It could be that you're somewhere in the middle of a workout, or you're sitting listening to a good album or reading your favorite novel, and it's one of those situations where it's just like time melts away. You could be in that place, laying on that beach, standing on that mountaintop, and just lose track of hours. All of a sudden, half the day's gone, and you've been working your way through that book. Most of us, myself included, when we get into the presence of the Lord, we do so checking the clock. What time do I have to get ready for work? When do the kids get up? What time does does this need to end? And so we would come across something that would lay out for us this incredible reality that Jesus' work on the cross has impacted our past, rearranged our future, and set the, rearranged our present and set the course of our future. And then we look at our watch and see we have to go and we just slap the Bible shut and say, cool, moving on. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to just stop and be in awe. Look how marvelous Jesus is. Better than Moses. Better than angels. Better than a high priest. Provides this better covenant than anything the Old Testament could provide. And he wants his readers to just stop and be in awe of that. And so the application here is simple. Carve out some time to just be in wonder before the Lord. I mean, really make some time. Get in the presence of the Lord every once in a while where there doesn't have to be a fixed endpoint to that time so that you can just marvel at who Jesus is. Let yourself be sort of swept away by the awe of that. That's what the book of Hebrews is for. It's to put forward Jesus in all of his greatness, in all of his glory, and to force us to ask the question, what's this tell me about Jesus? How does this point me to Jesus? How does it remind me of the greatness of Jesus? How did Jesus fulfill all these Old Testament things? And we would just be in wonder of him. Make some time, some space for that. Try to do it this week. Maybe you've got your normal routine of spending some time in in scripture, spending some time in prayer. Maybe you like to listen to worship music at a certain time. Find one day this week where you don't have a fixed endpoint for that and just let your heart swim in the beauty of who Jesus is. Verses 23 to 26 give us the act that has done all of this, that's made him mediator, the act that's made him the death that kicked in all of these New Testament, New Covenant promises, the act that one day helps remind us that he's coming again. And it's the atonement, Jesus' work on the cross. That's the hinge point of Christianity. The atonement. That is the moment at which the door of your access to the Lord swung wide open. In Leviticus chapter 4, there's a explanation of a particular offering. It's called the sin offering. It's given in four different categories. For religious leaders, and a sacrifice that should be done if the whole community has sinned in a certain way. For civil leaders, and then for an individual. And at the end of each of the four sections, the same statement is made. In this way, the priest will make atonement for your sin 
and, he, and you will be forgiven. Fourteen times in that chapter, the word blood is used. It's the blood of that animal offered by the priest that makes atonement for sin whereby a person can be forgiven. Verses 23 to 26 show us that Jesus has done that for us. Look at verse 25. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But he has appeared one time at the end of the age for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. That moment right there, the spilling of Jesus' blood, that is the fixture of Christianity. The thing that has purified you is the blood of Jesus Christ. He entered into the presence of God in the throne room of heaven and offered his blood as a sacrifice once and for all. That act never needs to be repeated. He hung on the cross one time, willingly spilled his own blood, and thus opened the doorway into the presence of God for all who are purified by that blood. That act of atonement is timeless. It happened on the cross. It's mediated at the right hand of the Father right now. And Jesus will come in power again, not to offer another sacrifice, but to consummate the one that he already gave, to bring to fullness all of his promises. The theological truths are wonderful. What it means for you personally is that you were saved by Jesus' act on the cross. You are being saved by his mediating right now, and you will be saved when he returns again. Past, present, future. All of it wrapped up in the atonement. Theological truth. Wonderful. Let me offer you three things that you could do in light of that. Three more, because one is just make the time to ponder it and stand in awe of Jesus. But another is wholeheartedly remember the cross. Belief in Jesus, to quote John Mark Comer, is not a rearranging of the intellectual furniture of our minds. It's not that we hear about Jesus and we just line things up in our brain and that's belief in Christ. Belief in Jesus is a wholehearted trust in the work of Jesus. It means to look back at the cross and to understand and exclaim from the depth of who you are that that is the only thing that could possibly make you right before the Lord. That that act and that act alone is what you are casting all of your faith and all of your trust upon. That if you're ever going to be made right for all of eternity, it's because of that thing and that thing alone. Jesus' work on the cross has atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. Our sins of ignorance, but also our sins that we commit of the high hand, like Numbers chapter 5 would say. Our sins that we knew we were sinning, and we did it. The Old Testament could not provide an atonement for that. Jesus' blood has. Our sins of the past, our sins of the future. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, did not provide a sacrifice for those future sins. Jesus' work on the cross has. And so I want to take a minute here. Many of us walk before the Lord weighed down by shame. The shame of our sin. Maybe it's the shame of a particular act that took place at one point in our lives in the past. And we understand intellectually that we've been forgiven, but 
in reality, we've never released ourselves from the shame, shame of that act. Shame says, I am bad. I am dirty. The gospel says, sin is dirty. Sin is unholy. Sin is bad. Sin is unclean. But the gospel also proclaims, your sin has been wiped clean. Gone. The picture of the priest putting his head or his hands on the head of that scapegoat, pronouncing that all the sins of Israel had been laid there, and then the whole community watching that goat wander off into the wilderness is a visual picture of what has happened to your sin by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Separated from you as far as east is from the west. Gone forever. You are clean. Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. Your conscience has been cleansed, brothers and sisters. Clean. And so to walk around not truly unloading the shame for your sin is to not fully take hold of grace. And I don't mean that it means that you're not saved. I just mean that it means that you haven't really pushed to the depth of who you are, the beauty of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And you might need prayer for that right here this morning. You walked in, loaded down with shame, and you could just use some prayer to release that. You might need to get before the Lord at some time this week and go through a process of naming the shame confessing it and turning it over to the Lord. Or even still, you might need to get into the presence of a trained and skilled counselor who can help you go back to some moments in your past that you still carry the weight of and help you process, deal with, and then walk in freedom from. Romans, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You've been washed clean. Clean. In the context of Roman or of Hebrews chapter 9, let me tell you why that matters. If we're bearing the weight of the guilt and the shame of our sin, we'll more than likely turn ourselves into like the Israelites standing outside that tabernacle, watching someone else go in and serve in the presence of the Lord. And we'll stand there totally idle. And I'll tell you what, Satan would love nothing more. You free yourself from the guilt and the shame of your sin. And now, like Hebrews 9 is saying, you go before the Lord and you serve because your conscience is clean. It's been, the slate has been wiped. Sin is dirty, but you've been purified. Sin is unholy, but you've been made righteous. Sin is bad, but you're covered by the goodness of Christ. And now you don't bear the weight of it anymore. It's gone. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how badly you need to receive that and to lift the weight and the burden of it from yourself because it was placed on Jesus. All you brought to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary and praise the Lord. Jesus took it all and sent it as far away from you as the east is from the west. Clean conscience. Guilt and shame, gone. Remember the cross. Look back to that. Don't let yourself forget it. In the present wholeheartedly serve before him. You're free to do that now. That's what we talked about last week, so we don't need to beleaguer the point. But what's crucial is that you cannot do that well in the here and now unless you're constantly reminding yourself of the reality of the cross. All of our service to the Lord 
is done because we're clean, not to make us clean. When we carry around the shame and the guilt of our sin, we start to think to ourselves, I'll really be forgiven if I do these things. Jesus' death on the cross made it so that now if I clean my life up, I'll actually be forgiven. That's legalism. That's works kind of salvation, not trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. You wholeheartedly serve before Him because your whole heart has been made clean. And now you can stand before Him like one of those priests in the Holy of Holies and conduct your service to the Lord. We don't do it to earn salvation. We do it because we've been saved. This quote from John Piper is fantastic. We please God with some act or behavior or some act of behavior or attitude which is flowing from the confidence that He is totally on our side because of Jesus' work alone. All of your service before him, all of your good works, if it weren't for Jesus, would be like filthy rags. But because of Jesus, are totally pleasing and satisfying to the Lord. He is completely on your side because of Jesus' work alone. And so we serve him with abandon. Fervently, energetically, knowing that we've been forgiven and we're just free to serve before Him. We do all of our kingdom kind of work from a clean conscience, from a place of received righteousness, from a loving obedience that truly and earnestly believes that the Lord's commands are for our good and we do them ultimately to the Lord's glory, not to somehow receive something lacking in ourselves. Last but not least, look to His return. Wholeheartedly look to His return not as a means of escapism. We don't look to the second coming of Jesus so that we can somehow forget the brokenness of the world and therefore offload our responsibility to work for kingdom realities. We look to Jesus' second coming because there's the picture of what the ultimate kingdom is going to be. You want to know what that's going to be like? Just sit down and read Revelation 19 through the end of the book. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth and every tear is going to be wiped from every eye and sin is going to be no more and Satan is going to be forever put... Uh, just vanquished and an end is going to be put to him and everything is going to be restored. There's the picture. And we work toward those kingdom realities now as a testament to the things that are ultimately going to come. We work for those now as a testament to his goodness and grace and his sufficiency. We tell people about the goodness of Jesus. We have empathy for spiritual life, for physical life, for the dignity of life. Because in working toward that, we show people the reality of who God is and the goodness of the kingdom that's coming. Looking backward and forward, we live today in service to the Lord. We remember the cross. We expectantly look toward his coming and we understand that we've been washed clean and we can serve wholeheartedly before the Lord. That's this timeless nature of what Jesus has done. Washed away your sin, rearranged your present, secured a very particular and certain future that now as the church, we proclaim in a broken world. I want to end with this. Uh, there was a man, uh, he was an author, but he's most known as a writer of hymns. His name is William Cooper. If you see his name spelled out, it looks like Cowper. 
C-O-W-P-E-R. He struggled with depression his entire life. In fact, so badly that multiple times he was institutionalized or hospitalized because of the depth of his anxiety and his depression. And when he would get into those moments, he would start to struggle with knowing and trusting in the reality that God had actually saved him, that God could possibly love him. And in one of those bouts in 1771, in an institution, he wrote a poem that he then set to music, and it was published in 1772. That poem was written so that when he went through these stages, he could read the words and remind himself of the timeless truth of Jesus' death. The hymn is maybe lesser known than some of the more popular ones, like Great is Thy Faithfulness or Holy, Holy, Holy. It's, but it's known by the first sentence of the poem. There is a fountain filled with blood. I just want to read the words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Past tense. It happened. That blood was drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Past tense. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die, and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Those are present tense in the here and now. And then he ends with this picture of the future. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Clinging to the work of Christ on the cross, treasuring it is what has set the pattern for our living now, knowing that he mediates on our behalf and hoping in its power in the future. Brothers and sisters, we don't stand before, you know, an altar somewhere and have some blood of a bull sprinkled upon us. We've been plunged beneath the blood of Jesus Christ. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Uh, I just want to, I want to kind of do two things. Number one, if you're, uh, if you're feeling the weight of guilt and shame, and that, that could be one of two ways. Number one, you've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. You know that your sin has been forgiven, but you're walking around and it's like, uh, like think Scrooge. Like you're dragging the chains and the weight of your 
guilt and shame for your sin. I long for you to be free from that. I really do. And so I can't, I can't encourage you enough. Find someone on our staff. We'd love to pray with you this morning for you to be able to release that. We'd love to put you in contact with a counselor that could help you process through some of that. But we long for you to be free. Free from the consequence of your sin eternally, yes, but also free from the shame of your sin in the here and now. The other way that you might be feeling the weight of guilt and shame is that you've not ever received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, you could do that this morning. Sinners plunged beneath that flood wash all their sins away. All of them. And so, uh, talk to someone seated around you. Come, come find me. I'd love to talk with you about what that means and what it looks like to receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ and to just be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. The second thing is this. Um, Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. That is, that is to be the default disposition of the heart of every follower of Jesus. And so we stand and, and we just worship and we proclaim and we have awe. And so I want to challenge you one more time. Make some space for that kind of just praise to the Lord this week. Outside of this time, outside of the restrictions of your clock and your calendar, find some space, carve it out. Read a chunk of Hebrews. Read part of the Gospels. Spend some time in Scripture. Read some Psalms. And then just marvel at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We're going to close with this song. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's close with this.